This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we're thinking big, big global conferences, big decisions by courts, and we're coming to you remotely from Guatemala City, the biggest city in Central America, and of course, the capital of Guatemala. The news here today is a new cooperation agreement that will have Guatemala combining forces with the U.S. and Mexico in the drug war. But that story is just a preface to a very busy news week throughout Latin America. Vanessa Jesus Gonzati has our weekly review of the news from around the region. The G20 meeting concluded in Mexico with a proposal to help Europe through its economic crisis. Mexican President Felipe Calderón gave more details about the agreements after the summit ended. To confront decisively the situation on the Eurozone, to assure global economic stability, to strengthen demand and economic growth as well as job creation, to focus monetary policy to maintain the stability of price and to sustain global recovery, to assure the fiscal consolidation in advanced economies. Calderon said this week that developing world contributions is a possibility to create a European bailout. Many say that even though the summit might not be able to provide a solution for the euro crisis, it showed the new balance of power in the world. Brazil is hosting the Rio Plus 20 summit that started Wednesday and is scheduled to end today. The United Nations Conference on the Environment involves the participation of 193 countries. The global organization says it is the biggest meeting ever organized. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon says progress on environmental issues has been slow since Rio de Janeiro hosted the Earth Summit in 1992. He says he is hopeful that they can reach a historic agreement on sustainable development issues, such as protection of oceans, protection of forests, and helping poor nations use renewable energy. We'll have more on the summit later. Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez handed back legislative power to the National Assembly this week after using special emergency powers for the past 18 months. During that time, Chavez pushed through 54 new laws. Originally, the National Assembly gave Chavez these special powers to cope with flooding and damage from heavy rains that hit Venezuela in 2010. Some of the laws Chavez wrote without legislative input had nothing to do with the emergency. Chavez created a new labor law, a new regulation for real estate rentals. He reformed bank regulations and created a Bolivarian militia to add to the armed forces. Chavez says that he would consider asking the National Assembly for emergency powers again if he is re-elected in October. The Falkland Islands government says it plans to hold a referendum next year to determine its political future. The question is whether or not to keep their status quo as British citizens that are part of a non-self-governing territory of the United Kingdom. The decision comes after months of increased tension between the UK and the Argentine government. Argentine President Cristina Fernández de Kirchner has become confrontational to Great Britain in order to obtain control of the islands that Argentina calls the Malvinas. The tension led to war in 1982 when the former military dictatorship in Argentina tried to get control of the Falklands and ended soon after British troops arrived and forced Argentina's military out. 
Paraguayan lawmakers voted to impeach President Fernando Lugo for his role in a deadly clash that involves landless farmers. Critics blame Lugo for the violence that came about last week when police tried to evict about 150 farmers from a reserve partly owned by a Colorado Party politician. 17 people died in the clash. Lugo expressed sadness over the event and accepted the resignation of his interior minister and his chief of police. The Paraguayan president denied that he would resign and said he would face a trial with all its consequences. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange could be arrested in London. He is supposed to be extradited to Sweden and he is hiding in the Ecuadorian embassy in the UK. He is seeking political asylum in Ecuador to avoid extradition to Sweden, where he will be prosecuted on sex crime charges. UK authorities say they will negotiate with the Ecuadorian government to resolve the situation. President Barack Obama announced last week that his administration would no longer deport certain undocumented immigrants who came to the United States as children. The Hispanic community reacted positively after this announcement. For years, the community had asked for a better alternative for young immigrants who have grown up and gone to school in the U.S. other than deportation. Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney said that Obama had done nothing on immigration until now. And Vanessa Jesus-Gonzari reporting for Latin Pulse. Thank you for listening. And now a programming note. This is our last program with Vanessa Jesus-Gonzari anchoring the news. She's headed back to Caracas, Venezuela, to resume a position with the controversial and noted publication Tal Qual. We wish her well, and we hope she can join us, if her time allows, with viewpoints from Venezuela in the future. Thank you for all your hard work, Vanessa. And now an interview conducted earlier this week via Skype while this program was traveling through El Salvador. Right now, the largest United Nations conference ever is underway in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, the Rio Plus 20 Conference, a conference on sustainability and the environment. Craig Hansen of the World Resources Institute is at the conference. He joins us via Skype. So this week we are connecting between El Salvador and Brazil. Welcome to Latin Pulse. Craig Hansen, please tell us your impressions of this important conference. Rio Plus 20 is is almost over. Uh, we've been here for more than a week. Uh, thousands of people from government officials to businesses to NGOs to academics are here trying to you know, further raise awareness about the environment and development challenges we face and further galvanize action moving forward. Um, it's, uh, you know, as we race to the, to the finish line here, uh, it's, it's kind of a mixed story we're hearing. And we're observing, you know, the Rio Plus 20 outcome document, the the uh, agreement text that nations uh, are going to sign up to, um, is a bit, you know, not exactly what a lot of the NGOs were hoping for. The the non-government organizations have weighed in, and, and and most of them are quite quite frustrated at what they see, because across the board the document's you know too soft and vague to solve today's sustainability challenges. You know, much of the text that we've seen is is a reaffirmation of previous agreements or, in some cases, a, a regression on some of those agreements. But that said, uh, as you know, we've believed all along, you know, there's, there's a lot of groundbreaking action here that actually comes outside of the formal 
negotiating process. Um, I know after attending a lot of site events and informal meetings over this past week, now I personally have come across a number of examples from civil society, entrepreneurs, companies, and others who are moving forward with uh, innovative approaches to address sustainability. And, and I'd say almost even more importantly, outside of Rio, many national and local governments are generally trying to push ahead on sustainability in a number of exciting ways. Since you're talking about things happening outside of the formal conference, we're hearing reports that at least 100,000 people were in the streets this week protesting and asking world leaders to make some progress on this very important topic of the environment. Um, Are there any examples from what you just talked about of some of these unique smaller movements that are are happening that, that give you some positive thoughts about things coming out of this conference? We, we see uh, some efforts by a number of organizations and, and, and even cities to uh, push the envelope on sustainable development. Just a couple examples here was that uh, earlier this week, uh, Mayor Bloomberg from New York City, uh, President Clinton, and a group of uh, major mayors from around the world announced some important progress for cities to address sustainable urbanization. I mean, as you know, this is an important issue. And as of 2010, I believe more than a half of the world's human population now lives in urban environments. Right? We are homo urbanus. And so sustainability in the cities is really important to the well-being of people going forward. And as Mayor Bloomberg said, you know, quote, you know, cities are on the front line of climate change, end quote, along with a number of environmental, other environmental issues, whether it's urban pollution, water, you name it. And this group, this group they call the C40, uh, are on track essentially to cut emissions by almost 250 million tons by 2020 and up to a billion tons by the year 2030. And they're really pushing things such as expanding bus rapid transit systems, which are a low-cost, low-emissions way of moving people around in megacities. In fact, uh, the city of Rio de Janeiro just this past week opened up its first rapid bus rapid transit system that um, the organization I work for, the World Resources Institute, was involved with designing in partnership with others and with the city of Rio. Uh, we're also engaged in helping a number of cities to start measuring their greenhouse gas emissions. As, as we all know, what gets measured gets managed. And the World Resources Institute has been working with a number of major cities to help put in place the accounting rules for what do you measure and how do you measure it. So we're pretty excited about uh, these movements when it comes to cities, transportation, and and greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, A a day or two ago, where eight multilateral development banks uh, agreed to provide $175 billion, that's a billion with a B, over 10 years in support of sustainable transportation worldwide. Now, this has a potential to become a, a game changer for uh, urban sustainable transportation, and we're pretty excited about this this commitment of real financial resources to taking this to scale. You, you mentioned bus systems. Would, how is that more sustainable and more environmentally friendly? How would those be configured? Well, the uh, bus rapid transit systems are quite interesting uh, Kind of pioneered here in Brazil and, and copied in places like Mexico City and elsewhere, what you end up, the way these are designed is you actually have a dedicated bus lane 
uh, and with lots of buses on a regular schedule. And so it doesn't, the buses don't get caught up in the, the traffic of the rest of the roads. And therefore, you can be on time. The buses have the frequency that gives people the, uh, the confidence that you know, they can get to work on time. And the buses are very low emission vehicles. So you have much less pollution compared to more traditional buses of the past. And it's a, a lot less expensive to actually build. You don't have to go underground. You actually just an above ground system, and it's proving to be around many of the major megacities of the planet. It's proving to be quite a cost-effective, uh, sustainable means of moving large amounts of people. You've listed a number of smaller success stories that are coming out of the conference or coming out of news that's that's around the conference, but yet the media theme that is coming out of the conference as one of disappointment. So were expectations too high going into this? Um, what is your take on the theme when we finish with the conference later this week? I think, I mean, this, is a, this, this event is a historic opportunity for, for moving the agenda, advancing the agenda of sustainability amongst the world's global leaders. I mean, this is a very large event with a very large number of world leaders participating in these final days. Uh, so yes, a lot of a lot of civil society, non-governmental organizations had high expectations that you know some major new steps could go forward. Um, I think you know to, to find a bit of a silver lining on this, there's a um, you know a couple of things that, that we have seen in the negotiating text. That are, that are signs of hope are the following. First, um, there's conversations around sustainable, sustainable development goals. You know, we've been living the past decade, up to about 2015, we're living in a world where nations have agreed to a set of millennium development goals uh, that basically seek to address uh, poverty, uh, education, etc., to help, li- help um, tackle the issue of, of, of global poverty. Uh, in the developing world. There's a big question out there is what happens after 2015? The targets go to 2015. What comes next in setting some global goals? And so now what we see in Rio is inclusion of so-called sustainable development goals uh, uh, with an idea that after 2015, the world leaders need to find some way for setting the next set of goals such that sustainability is baked in as part and parcel of the next generation of goals. Now, what is here at Rio is a commitment to set up a process to start thinking about the post-2015 development agenda. Uh, so there's a, it's not a done deal, but there's a window of opportunity here for incorporating sustainability into the heart of the next generation development goals going forward. And that, that's going to play out over the next couple of years uh, as in the run-up to, to 2015. Um, the issue of governance. Governance you know, is super important, it's albeit overlooked when it comes to the, the management of the world's natural resources. And when I say governance, I mean the, the, how natural resources are managed and the role that people play in terms of having you know, transparency information, the ability to participate in decision-making so that 
you know, land that you live on isn't just taken away from you to make a, a hydroelectric dam, right? That actually you have a say in how your natural resources are managed. Um, there's a, there was a, there was a, the out of Rio in the, in, in, in the document, the text provides support for some principles uh, that were enshrined in the original Rio plus 20 summit, the so-called principle 10, which is about providing transparency and accountability when it comes to decision making. So we think, you know, this is a good foundation, uh, again, for ensuring that civil society, that people uh, can end up, ha can have a say in how their natural resources are managed, because, because that actually is one, of, I would argue, one of the preconditions for good governance and good natural resource management is the active participation and involvement uh, of people in how their natural resources are actually managed. So that's another sign uh, that, that I, my colleagues have worked hard on making sure is reaffirmed and advanced in Rio. And it is in there. Uh, so that is a, a, another positive sign in, in, this, in this text. Well, thank you, Craig Hansen of the World Resources Institute, WRI, joining us today from Rio via Skype. Thank you. Thank you. I want to finish school and then go to college to be able to graduate and have the future my parents couldn't have because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse, and now looking forward to the U.S. Supreme Court's decision, likely to come in the next week, about Arizona's controversial immigration law. Here are excerpts from our pre-recorded Skype interview with J.S. Ratode, an immigration law expert with the Washington College of Law at American University. We'd like to talk to you about the Arizona immigration law, this case, I guess, that is styled as Arizona v. United States or Arizona versus the United States. What is your take on this particular law and how do you feel about what has been discussed in, in these particular discussions regarding how it may be resolved? Yes. The, so the Arizona law is one of many laws that have emerged at the state level that are attempts by state and local governments to regulate immigration. And Historically, the role of regulating immigration and enforcing immigration laws is one that's been held by the federal government. But in the last 10 years or so, as we've seen an influx in the population of undocumented migrants in this country, we've seen states begin to assert more interest and leadership in the area of immigration control. And what that's created is a tension between the federal government and the state government, the federal government on the one hand asserting its federal power to control immigration and the state governments insisting that they should and legally do have a role to control immigration. You know, this law is really interesting because it's gotten a lot of play, as you know, in the media. And there are particular provisions that have received a lot of media attention, but the law is actually comprised of multiple provisions that cover a broad range of issues relating to um, not only arrest and apprehension of immigrants, but also penalties for failing to carry 
registration documents, penalties for, for example, picking up uh, passengers for work that are aimed at uh, you know, controlling day labor hiring, penalties for transporting or harboring unlawful aliens. So, so there's actually a broad range of provisions that are at issue um, in this case. Now, what's happened with the case is that after the law was passed, I'm sorry, after the law was passed, but before it was formally uh, um, in effect, the federal government filed a lawsuit against the state of Arizona, and the federal government insisted that some of the provisions were unconstitutional. And in response, a local federal district court judge enjoined uh, several of the provisions, and essentially what that means is she prevented them from being implemented. And the state of Arizona appealed that decision and has taken that decision all the way up to the Supreme Court. This has been bracketed as a state's rights versus federal rights issue, but many groups would also say that it has a lot to do with profiling, and it has a lot to do with discrimination against Latinos. Do you see Mm -hmm. it in the same way? You know, as a legal scholar, what what I would say is that the issue before the Supreme Court is not at all about racial profiling. Now, one of the possible effects of the law may be that the police officers may engage in some kind of racial profiling. And that's an important policy issue that needs to be discussed um, by lawmakers and by advocates and by members of the community. But the issue of profiling is not one that the Supreme Court is looking at. What the Supreme Court is really looking at a pretty narrow technical legal issue, which is whether what Arizona is trying to do conflicts with what the federal government has the authority to do. And so what the Supreme Court is doing. It's parsing the existing immigration laws that exist at the federal level and seeing if those are in tension with what Arizona wants to do. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but what this Arizona law, which has been influential in a number of other states, has done is empowering law enforcement officials to be extended arms of the immigration service, more or less, or the Border Patrol. Right. Well, so... There, what's inter- what we have already on the books that you know the federal government a number of years ago enacted a program where they entered into partnership agreements with state governments. That's a program that's known as the 287G program. What makes this distinct is that the states are doing it without any type of formal partnership with the federal government. They're saying we don't need to enter an, into an agreement with you. We're just going to do it on our own, and therein lies the tension. Well, because this also becomes an international issue. It has effects not only with relations with Mexico, but also with various Central American countries, too. That's right. Mexico and Central America are significantly affected. And, you know, the Mexican government had taken a stance against the law publicly, which was interesting. Um, there were some reports that I haven't confirmed that well, interestingly, some of the um, in Arizona and in other states that have passed laws like this, that some of the individuals who were affected were not necessarily Latinos, but were Europeans. For example, I believe it was in Alabama that uh, a corporate executive from Europe 
I believe the gentleman was German, was detained because he didn't have his papers. And so it was kind of ironic considering the impetus of the law actually was affecting people who um, you wouldn't expect would be affected. You mentioned um, Alabama, and so I I think I should also mention that at least uh, Georgia, South Carolina, Indiana also have similar laws. If the Supreme Court makes this narrow ruling, as you've talked about, would it also have an effect on those states? That's a great question. Again, it really depends on how narrow or how broad the court rules. So, for example, the court could take a really technical approach and just limit its holding, its decision to the particulars of the Arizona law, in which case it would only affect other laws insofar as they had provisions that were really similar to what Arizona has in its law. On the other hand, the court might use this case as an opportunity to make a broader statement about the power of states to regulate in the area of immigration. And if it does so, whether it's to limit that power or to expand that power, um, it could certainly have a broad spillover effect onto all of these different laws that are cropping up. What Arizona's position is that if we make, and they've said so much, if we make life difficult enough for individuals who are undocumented, they're just going to leave the state. And so they call it attrition through enforcement. And so the idea is not necessarily to come up with some pathway for people to stay permanently or legally, but just to kind of drive people out of the their state either by force or by the fact that um, you know they may be living in fear or other some other kind of of threat, and so many of the most of the states are designing laws uh, in that mold, and so there none of none of them are really taking a more holistic view of why people are coming, the reality of their lives in the U.S. and and whether there's there's an alternative approach that might contemplate some type of lawful status or work authorization or or something else. One of your specialties is immigration law. So um, pardon me for putting you on the spot, but any prediction for what we might see from the Supreme Court later this month? Yes. So what I predict is that the Supreme Court is going to have a very narrow ruling. And, you know, I said that it's possible that they could come up with a broad pronouncement on the power of the federal government versus the state government, I don't think they're going to do that. I think that the Supreme Court is likely to uphold some of the provisions that are at issue and to, and by that I mean to declare that they aren't uh, in conflict with federal law and others that they'll declare that they are in conflict. But whatever the Supreme Court does, it doesn't end the dispute. As I stated, this case is kind of in an initial stage where a judge just preliminarily ordered these provisions to be um, enjoined. And so the case still needs to be sent back down to that judge for a full hearing on the merits. And at that point, the judge may decide that there's additional facts that suggest that she may need to do things differently. So we could be seeing this case go back up to the courts once again. And aren't there also other challenges to this law besides the ones in front of the Supreme Court? Absolutely. There were, I would say, initially around uh, a dozen or so lawsuits. Many of them were 
some of them were dismissed, others were consolidated, and others were kind of held in abeyance, just kind of on hold until the the Supreme Court um, ruled on this. So yes, there there's there are other pending challenges, both to the Arizona law and to the laws of other states. And so all of those are on hold until we get the, the decision probably this month. Thank you so much, Jayesh Ratod of the Washington College of Law at American University joins today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Travel support for this week's program provided by the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse from Guatemala. For our entire team, associate producer Vanessa jesus Gonzati, writer Lydia Bayoud, and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is sponsored by American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. The program is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>